0: Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. Today we're chatting with Justin Chang, film critic at the Los Angeles Times, about more movies from the Cannes Film Festival. We talk about Blue Bayou, a drama from Justin Chan, Stillwater, starring Matt Damon from the director of Spotlight, the mysterious Mia Hansen love movie, Bergman Island, and Koganada's new science fiction film, After Yang, with Colin Farrell. I talked with Justin at the last edition of CAN in 2019, and it was a pleasure to pick right back up. Be sure to check the LA Times for his latest write-ups on the festival. And just a reminder, if you like this podcast series, you can support The Last Thing I Saw by signing up at repold.substack.com. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is uh, another installment in the CAN series which I am experiencing from afar, uh, but with no less amount of interest. But I I try to compensate. I try to treat that condition um, by talking about every day. And for this episode, I'm extremely happy to connect again with a critic who I've had the pleasure of talking with at festivals. As it turns out, this time we're both in the same boat. And that critic is Justin Chang of the LA Times. Uh, Welcome, Justin.
1: Thank you, Nick. And yeah, I am right there with you in terms of the FOMO. It kind of comes in waves, doesn't it? And it reminds you how long Can is. Yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) when you're there, it's long, I mean, it's long and you want to go home after a while, but it's wonderful and enveloping and... Yeah. Now, when you're just from afar reading everyone and reading tweets and reading reviews and stuff, it's just like, uh, okay, everyone go home already.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. Stop telling me about this stuff. Exactly. Stop telling me about it. And why can't I stop reading about it? Oh yeah, because yeah. it's our job, and it's because we uh, <laughs> we would be there uh, if we if we could be. So yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. <laughs> But, um, I, you know, obviously, um, as critic at the uh, Los Angeles Times, you have were able to keep up uh, to a certain extent. Um, and I mean, how, how has that been? And, you know, what has Can kind of looked to you this year, this edition?
1: Yeah, it's been really, really great, actually, to be able to see those movies and to see, I think, most of them on the big screen uh, in very limited capacity screenings, which obviously does not. Duplicate the can experience in any way, um, you know, for, right. for for better and for worse. I mean, you maybe feel a little bit safer this year in these nearly empty screening rooms, but you don't get, of course, the the feel of you know you're watching a movie and your reaction and how that resonates against or with the reaction of the audience. Uh, and in some ways, that's a good thing because it gives you the time and the space to formulate your own opinion and just let the movie work on you without any of mm. that noise. But that said, it's like of course you miss the I've seen a bunch of movies and I'm like, "Oh wow, I I you actually kind of want that audience reaction because you feel like you're in a vacuum, you know." So, yeah. but it's been really nice. Uh, I'm so appreciative of distributors, sales agents, publicists who've been kind enough to show me some of the films. I think I've seen about 15 or 20 or will have by the time things are over. And that's you know, not too much less than I would normally see if I were there on the ground in Cannes. Mm. So it's like, oh, that's pretty good actually. And yeah. it, it feels still feels very fractional. Like I don't have a great sense of I know I'm we're you know, I know we're both missing stuff. And so um, even when you're there at the festival, you can feel a little overconfident sometimes trying to project a theme or you know a conclusion of any kind on like what this year's festival says about the industry, about just where artists are and where their heads Absolutely. are these days but i will just say it it seems like a very good very solid can i mean i am in general i I, i'm not someone who complains about the can lineup all that all that much i mean everyone you know Mm. beyond a few films generally i'm like oh my god it's uh it's a totally revivifying experience to be there and i mean and to see you know 12 days straight of really really interesting movies and that is still the case now even though i'm doing it um from a distance
0: Yeah, it's, I I have to agree, Uh, you know, again, obviously the caveat that, you know, there are some films we haven't, haven't seen, but yeah, it seems like a strong year and the pandemic was not like a a mortal wound for its reach or, and for getting the movies out in the world. And so that's, that's been good to see. I mean, I'm sure they'll all benefit from like the, I'm kind of, I'm envisioning like a, a a gymnast doing like an extra bounce for the higher jump, uh, (laughs) I guess that's what the fall is going to be like for some of these uh, movies. Um, you know, the extra springboard at the end, and I guess a shorter distance between now and the fall also means
1: that these movies aren't aren't going to fade for sure. And and a shorter distance between next year's can, you know, May twenty twenty two. I keep thinking is it's not that far away. Actually, we're already you know a couple <laughs> months uh, closer. So yeah. uh, assuming they assuming everything goes well and those dates remain fixed i mean we take nothing for granted these days yeah but uh some of us are already looking forward to the next next yeah absolutely
0: well so we put together a little selection of movies and i think that one of them that's most fresh in your mind is uh the new film from justin sean that is called blue bayou
1: yes and i appreciate you nick not making the uh no relation joke when you said justin Chan. although uh i'm gonna make the joke because uh it's like oh. <laughs> since the film was announced and apparently a friend told me who was at the uncertain regard screening of blue bayou and can said like when terry fray said Said his name. He could have sworn he was saying my name. You know, I don't know how that would have sounded like uh, Justin Uh, Chan or something. I don't know. It sounds very. It's it's funny. And he's someone that I I have never written about his films. Um, although I sort of follow. I'm he he's had a fascinating career so far. And I was just looking it up. Uh, I think Blue Bayou is actually his fourth feature because he directed a very little scene. First one called Man Up, which I haven't seen. I've seen the others, but yeah, you know. This one is, I would say, because the two that we, everyone, most people have seen, uh, Miss Purple and, and Gook, were both set in LA's Koreatown. This one, uh, Blue Bayou, takes place in Louisiana, and Chan plays a Korean adoptee who was adopted in like the late eighties and has, you know, lived his entire life in, in Louisiana. And so that in itself already sets up an interesting and very different kind of cultural dynamic from his other movies. And what ends up happening is he is threatened with deportation due to there, there's events not of his making. Uh, he ha- there's an altercation with, with police. They discover misfiled paperwork from his adoption years ago. ICE gets involved because he's put in their custody. And then all the movie is building toward this hearing where he has to plead his case to, uh, to be allowed to stay. And so this is a movie that's drawn, it's fictional, but it's drawn very much from a really kind of alarming real-life phenomenon where a lot of international adoptees, especially from Korea, but not only from Korea, have, you know, due to paperwork irregularities... Have found themselves in this really horrifying situation of course this chimes with you know the ongoing you know immigration debate in this country and um and just deportation and just persecution of undocumented people so but this is a very interesting unique angle on that particular crisis so he uh is married to alicia vikander and uh with whom he has a stepdaughter and they have a kid on the way so and he's a very loving husband and family man so it's, it's about his struggle. And I would say this movie is extremely contrived and heavy-handed at times. It is not subtle filmmaking. It has this sort of kind of very heavy, sometimes very effective, but heavy lyricism to it. But it also has a script that leans very heavily on coincidence uh, and melodrama at times. And it was one of those experiences where every time the movie would keep pushing me out with with some just gross unsubtlety of that kind, it would pull me back in. And I don't mind admitting I was kind of an emotional wreck by the end. I think he hits on something very, very powerful here, particularly with his actors. I think, you know, it's funny because he, Justin Sean is such a, you know, he's such an interesting guy because he is, you know, a multi, a multi-hyphenate as they say <laughs> in, in industry lingo. And I would say, I I think I like him best as an actor. Like I, I think he's got a really terrific, charismatic on screen presence. Mm-hmm. Um, he could probably, you know, you'd probably afford to step back in terms of, you know, I don't know if it's the directing or the writing, no, not the directing probably, but he's obviously, you know, taking on a lot And the film might benefit from him, you know, stepping back a little bit to give some distance to the material. That said, there is something very much at the core of this movie that really works and works on you, too. Mm. Um, Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's such, the storyline
0: was intriguing to me because, I don't know, it's something I've kind of been thinking about the past few years. Um, I mean, I guess this is a movie that was you know, I, I suppose, written and directed, uh, I mean, during the Trump administration, obviously, since, mm-hmm. by the, you know, by the time it comes out now. So yeah. it's not as if all of that has gone away suddenly. I mean, you know, obviously, there have been some changes, you know, yeah. politically and policy wise, but it's not as if the feelings and the, the tendencies and the animus uh, that was in the country disappeared with the change of the presence. president. So, you know, I was kind of really wanted to see this movie because at the very, very basic level, it's just kind of a reminder (laughs) to think about this um, and uh, understand this. I mean, that was one thing. And then the other thing that was intriguing to me is just the idea of chance. I mean, it's it's interesting. You're talking about um, the use of coincidence in the film, because, you know, with the movie that turns on, you know, the possibility of ice Mm -hmm. uh, swooping in, it makes me rethink what chance means um, because chance means a very different thing, depending, you know, who it's happening to. And, you know, but it's kind of amazing to think of like Hitchcock movies where chance, like it's outlandish, the things that happen. And, but Mm -hmm. these aren't outlandish things, but the effects are more severe and, you know, not at all an adventure. Um, Obviously these totally different types of movies, but just, I was just thinking like generally about what that means and the implications there.
1: I think you've hit on a really good point about that, Nick. I mean, it's, yeah, the use of coincidence throughout—I I think a lot of that is for matters of narrative expedience because some of the key characters are police officers, which you know kind of tightens the, which is sort of the reason that the situation escalates to begin with. There is a custody battle going on between Alicia Vikander's character and her former husband or former partner, who is the biological father of her older kid. And so, but yeah, what you're saying about chance—it's like well who is the most likely to fall victim to rotten luck in this country right who is the most likely to simply by virtue of existing and being in the wrong place at the the proverbial wrong place at the wrong time or saying or doing the wrong thing is likely to find themselves facing deportation well you know and it's like so in a way the movie has this does have this sort of built in defense against that because it's like well uh there are a lot of marginalized people in this country and, and they may not look it uh, because I mean, and Justin Trump playing this guy, you know, this guy who, his name is Antonio LeBlanc, by the way. And in the very first scene, it's like somebody, it's basically interviewing him for a job and saying like, like Antonio LeBlanc, where where did, like, where did you get a name like that? You know? And it, it kind of gets into this whole also, you know, where are you from? No, where are you really from territory? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the ste- stealthy implication, of course, that he does not belong. Um, mm-hmm. Which, as you say, is as relevant now um, as it was during the Trump administration, and it's interesting though because, and there, it's also an interesting movie to watch, you know, in light of attacks on Asian and Asian American people since COVID, and of course the movies, you know, Inception, mm-hmm. Conception predates all of that as well, um, and there are scenes in which, you know, Chan's character, Antonio is assaulted, is roughed up, is treated horribly. But that said, it's interesting that racism and racial animus is not really the driving impulse, it seems. I mean, the guys who get him in trouble, namely his wife's uh, first husband, they they use that, they exploit that in, in a way, but their main motivation is that, well, you're, you know, you've taken my place in a way, which also, but if you think about that, that has interesting implications as well. Like you, Mm. an Asian guy have taken my place in my former wife's home and, and as the father to my, my child. So there's also this character of a sympathetic ice agent uh, or worker who is a close friend of Sean's character, who uh, is kind of floating on, on the periphery, but that does feel like a very conscious decision that, I think might rub some people the wrong way because mm. it's sort of, this movie does, to its credit and maybe to its detriment, try to show everyone's humanity. And one of the reasons I recoil from it in certain ways is because it it seems to have five different endings too. And in, in, in a way, it's sort of trying to parcel out a little bit of redemption for everyone in this situation, including, well, I actually don't want to say too much. I've probably said too much already, but I will just say that what the movie does very effectively and which did absolutely you know make me tear up and and you know doc at some points maybe i should know too that what this movie does very effectively while sometimes wielding a sledgehammer but sometimes that sledgehammer lands um is showing you how violent it is to separate a family the violence in that act and of course, you know, family separations at the border uh, due to deportation. This is something that we've been reading about and living with for, well, actually for a long time, even predates the Trump years, of course, as we know. So I think that the movie, despite its sort of formal and structural clumsiness, is keyed into something very, very powerful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, I think I sort of hurt his first two films, you know, I didn't think yeah. that they were. These perfectly wrapped with a bow sort of um, sure. stories. But I kind of felt like that was part of what they were talking about. With, <laughs> it's kind of hard to tie these things up in, in a bow. Totally. So that's Blue Bayou, director Justin Chan, um, and that was in the In Search of Regard section. Mm-hmm. And I think there were two or three other movies uh, we wanted to, to get into. I wonder would Stillwater be interesting to talk about? Yeah, totally. Totally. Okay, I'll just do like the quick potted summary.
1: <laughs> Sounds good.
0: So yeah, Stillwater uh, is directed by Tom McCarthy, uh, who is, you know, bona fide Oscar approved uh, director <laughs> for Spotlight, which, you know, I'll say right at the top, I have found perfectly well, enjoyable is the wrong word, but perfectly satisfactory uh, drama, <laughs> thought it had a, actually a good feel for like the shoe leather quality of a you know, investigative totally. reporting. I didn't really care that it didn't have the i don't know that it wasn't all the president's men like all right sorry (laughs) what is (laughs) exactly so now his latest film in a career to be honest i have not tracked very closely since spotlight i will say that stillwater is about a father played by matt damon and his daughter played by abigail breslin and they are separated when the when the movie starts. Uh, Matt Damon is is a construction worker, sort of, you know, uh, making do as well as he can in in the U.S. And his daughter is in prison, uh, in Marseille. I guess not too far from Cannes, actually. Um, although that's that's not noted in the film for some reason. Um, and uh, so she's there because. I don't exactly know the exact charge. I guess it would be some form of manslaughter, and this sounds like uh, might remind a lot of people of the case of the American student uh, in Italy,
1: the Amanda Knox uh, murder trial, uh, which has been bitterly contested for years, uh, mm. and you know uh, the the murder of a British student, Meredith Kircher, back in 2007 in Italy, mm. and so this has been it's very loosely inspired by that story, but spun in a pretty different direction and transplanted as you say to the french port city of marseille
0: yeah and yeah i guess also like there, there's differences in, in the class dynamics too which which are, are key yes. to this um and so the the action of the movie thanks to like a, a time jump at one point is basically that uh, matt damon's character is living in marseille and trying to track down uh the facts there, there might be some way to um exculpate his daughter of the crime mm-hmm. which she is not entirely aware he's doing because she's in prison. And so you have this weird thing that's like partly, I mean, this is what threw, threw me about this movie is that it's <laughs> it's like partly a fish out of water dramedy at times or romance. Exactly, I mean, yeah. it was kind of a trip <laughs> in every sense to, to watch this. I mean, what did you make of uh, Stillwater?
1: Yeah, I, I didn't know what to make of it at first. And it, it's such a strange film uh, as you lay out, Nick and I. And I, and I kind of like that strangeness and moment to moment unpredictability of it, actually. It's like, a, as you say, a fish out of water, culture clash, dramedy, you know, with a romance. And then uh, of course it begins and, and sort of ends as a detective thriller that swerves into some very uh, just harrowing territory <laughs> kind of throughout, but also at the end. And it's, it feels like a lot of movies jostling together in one, and and I don't completely mind that. I I think that and I I think that some of those movies are more interesting than others, and I was actually with the with Stillwater most maybe as. Matt Damon's character is sort of this oil worker from Oklahoma is finding this new home and the second life um, and maybe a distant shot at redemption because he's had a really, you know, he's made a lot of mistakes and he's a uh, total screw up and all this. And he's trying to make good and do do right by his daughter when he finds the second life in France and forms kind of bonds with the people there, um, including uh, a woman um, who uh, serves as his guide and, and helps him around. She's played by Camille Cotin. So, yeah, I was <laughs> I was with it for the most part. And it's funny, too, how the movie sort of, I think, has some admirable political intentions by basically trying to undermine the authority of the Matt Damon character, who is this kind of, you know, whether you think of him as like kind of the ugly American or the just the or this kind of, you know, Projects this vision of like kind of American lone ranger Mm. justice striding into this foreign land and, and doing whatever it takes. And without giving too much away, the movie I think keeps kind of undermining that and trying to, you know, um, this is also, also, yes, as you say, it's a, the cultural tensions here. There is very much, you know, probably conservative, devoutly Christian guy who prays before every meal. I haven't seen a movie in which a character, you know, you see a lot of movies about Christians, but That's this true. is one where they really are committed to that particular thing. <laughs> it's like, he really, it's like, and it's, it's done completely, you know, without condescension and without, you know, um, I think that the movie is really trying to wrap itself um, as non-judgmentally as possible around the various cultural extremes represented in Mm. the story. I will also say Tom McCarthy wrote wrote this with uh, Marcus Hinchy, and then drew the input of Thomas uh, Biedigan. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, and uh, Noé Debray, who are uh, two French screenwriters, who are also credited with the script, Bidegain in particular. He's very much known for his uh, work with uh, Jacques Audiard, who, who also has a film in Cannes this year, mm. incidentally. But this one in particular felt like a real echo of Bidegain and Debray's, uh, this movie that they wrote and which Bidegain directed called Les Cowboys, which oh, was yeah. also, yeah, it was like several years ago. And that is also an interesting kind of Franco-American crossover story very much self-consciously a Western, uh, in ways that Stillwater isn't quite so much. Also, a, a story about a father who is basically trying to bring home his 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 wayward daughter, as it were, or, or his missing daughter in that case. So, there's it's a very just to throw in one more thing. It's mm-hmm. I, that this is what I'm throwing in. It's that it's it's also just kind of a a companion piece to that to that film.
0: That's really interesting. I didn't I didn't think of that, but in, until you said it. But yeah, that, that fits it exactly. I mean, it's almost like he's. <laughs> It's almost like he's an American director doing the kind of film that a French director yeah. would make about an American hero. Yeah. And I think that extends to something that kept surprising me along the way, which is, I mean, if I, if I say it in a positive light, it's that they don't always spend a lot of time explaining pretty big stuff that happens or pretty big changes that, that happen yes. at certain points. Um, and the negative way of saying that is that at times there was kind of a magical thinking quality to the plotting. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like if a character wants something to happen or is considering something, yeah. then it just kind of happens somehow. Um, and we're not exactly sure. Oh, and we're not even sure. We don't necessarily even know enough about the character to think about whether that would happen. I mean, for me, chief among that is his moving to and living in Marseille the, in the first place. Yeah. And just yeah. immediately, like they spend zero time on how he is suddenly living with the playwright, whatever uh, or, or dramaturg character, um, yeah. <laughs> which is I guess I kind of just have to hand it to them because it's like yeah, don't even bother trying to, to explain that <laughs> setup, just cut <laughs> c- cut to it, you know? And which then makes it funny when well I don't want to give it away, but I mean on the other hand it's kind of what like everyone is thinking about as later on, they take pains to like walk through the steps of how their relationship might change then, which ends up being yes. kind of a, a, I don't know, almost like for me, like sitcom hilarious kind of process. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, totally. It's, I don't know.
0: And I just, I was looking at my notes like two or three times that I just wrote to myself, what is this movie?
1: Seriously. And, and, and there's something kind of disarming about that. And mm-hmm. yet, I think you're absolutely right that there are implausibilities here. And, you know, the movie also compresses quite uh, just a narrative span, it felt like. Like, I was totally expecting this movie to be a different thing, where a kind of typical sort of crusader for justice kind of mm-hmm. investigative drama. And then, I, you know, it's it's two hours and 20 minutes. And at a certain point, I checked my watch saying, like, we've got to be at the halfway point already. And it was like 20 minutes had gone by. And it was like, okay, (laughs) so this movie is kind of in it for the long haul. And it is, I I presume, going in a different direction from what I expect. You know, Tom McCarthy has had a very weird career. I mean, well, he directed an Oscar winning uh, Best Picture. You know, I did not see The Cobbler, which I know is like probably his worst movie or worst received movie, uh, the Adam Sandler one. Um and that was kind of seen that came out around the same time as Spotlight. And so but it, it, it's kind of as proof of like he is sort of an erratic guy, at least in terms of subject. But he has this, yeah, it's this very just straightforward, you know, plunk the camera down, you know, very absorbing kind of, you know, very watchable filmmaking style that can kind of lend itself to a, wa- a range of subjects and there's sort of as I was watching I was feeling okay there's this is not Spotlight obviously but there's sort of something of that kind of dogged procedural quality mm. to it you know it has this patience with the the minutiae which which I liked a lot about Spotlight um, and it also has you know it, it's like it reminded me of The Visitor his film with Richard Jenkins and Haim Abbas you know and there's there is an interest in you know, cross-cultural dynamics and 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 reconciliation. I would say there, and and I think it's you know it's to his credit that he brought in Bittigat and uh, Debray, who give this very implausible story a grounding in in the world in which it largely takes place, which is Marseille. Even though the movie is called Stillwater, named after the Oklahoma city where he uh, mm-hmm. where he is from and where the movie begins.
0: Yeah, it's, it's true. There's something about the combination uh, that kind of makes it uh, go down a bit more smoothly. Yeah. You know, I guess there's also just that ingredient of uh, Matt Damon, which I know is, is definitely yes. a star who's kind of sort of love love or hate or just wish wasn't around and everything sort of feeling as some people have. Um, but like, this is what they're for, is kind of putting something like this across.
1: No, and I, I liked him a lot on this. I, I just want to say, I I had a really strange reaction to Damon's performance because, you know, he is playing, you know, he's got, he's walking around very stiff gated, you know, in these plaid Mm -hmm. shirts and this baseball cap. And he is just, he's just sticks out. Like he does not blend in. Um, And you are not thinking about Jason Bourne, globetrotting man of mystery in this movie at any point. You're just, Mm -hmm. he is just like, so the opposite of that. And, and I just think it's interesting in terms of Damon's persona, because he's someone who I think can sometimes vanish uh, very, very wonderfully into, you know, into character roles Into, you know, he's he's a movie star. And yet he has that kind of ability to be self-effacing. Mm. And, and yet, in a weird way, Damon has sort of come under fire in recent years for some of his like comments on like on diversity and, you know, kind of, you know, what has largely been widely been perceived and criticized as tone deaf remarks. Um, you know, he was the star of The Great Wall, that really tacky Zhang Yimou blockbuster. Oh, wow, and yeah. where he was sort of like, you know, and I bring that up because I actually thought of that during Stillwater, where mm-hmm. it's like you plunk down this guy and, and in a situation where it doesn't seem like he belongs. This movie, though, it's done very purposefully, I felt like. And in a way, it almost felt like Matt Damon kind of, he's like assuming the mantle of like, the, you know, the, the yeah, the guy who you know, probably voted for Trump, uh, and that that is broached in the movie where a character yeah. flat out asks him, "Did you vote for Trump?" And the answer <laughs> is actually really interesting um, yeah. and worth kind of discovering. But it's like it's almost like he is donning this kind of I don't know, uh, you know, flyover state drag. <laughs> to what I don't to what end I'm not entirely sure. But it felt almost like you know, kind of almost like an offered up in a spirit of an apology. You know, sort of like mm. um, you know, because the movie is critical of that kind of you know small-minded mentality and by the end his his horizons have definitely been expanded so i'm probably going off way off on a on an unnecessary tangent
0: no no that's (laughs)
1: really interesting
0: i mean i I, because i really see what what, what you're saying i mean there were times where i felt like it was that was that like get her done in the script or is he just sprinkling them in there now um you know and just kind of really kind of punching i don't know these little turns of phrases and things um Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I could imagine that. Also, I mean, it's, the, the script is kind of supporting that. I mean, I, I think I made a joke about this too. But like, at one point, I mean, because the woman he's, he's staying with, uh, she has a daughter. And the daughter, they have this relationship, which I just went back and forth between like not being able to stand and then just being charmed by. But at one point, the daughter actually says, you're my favorite American. Um, oh God. and yeah. and I mean and so yeah, I was joking that the alternate title of this movie is my favorite American um yeah. <laughs> exactly because that's how they treat it. that's the thing like other yeah. than when he goes into you know these sort of dicey scenes in the in the I guess Bonlie or you know or yeah you know yeah. that those sort of scenes are a bit much and there is that thing lingering over. I think it is interesting he's really like performing this this Americanness and yeah, it's it's hard to know. What's what to make of it? And yet I was not like knee jerk throwing this movie out. Totally. Yeah. Me neither. There was one other thing I wanted to uh, just quickly mention out the movie because I didn't want to just focus on, on Matt Damon. Abigail Breslin, I have to say, I really liked yes. her in this. And she has a really tough role because she's basically in prison. And so it's all these kind of tough, like, you know, two hander scenes with Matt Damon in visiting booth or something at the prison. Yep. And she has to put across so much in terms of history and also this kind of, you know, ineffable kind of sketchiness about her character without making it like a source of suspense. I thought, I thought it was just like, there's something going on with, with this person. And she does a lot. uh, I think she does a lot with a little uh, there with a, with a character that I don't know, the movie almost dares you at times to, to Mm -hmm. villainize. Um, I don't know. So I was kind of intrigued by what she was doing.
1: I think Abigail Breslin is really great in the film. She may the best be the best single thing or person in it. Mm. I, um, uh, just for all the reasons you said, there's this ferocity that she has that mm-hmm. is very kind of that you can tell she's trying to trying to hold in. There's this their relationship is one of estrangement and and resentment, and she conveys all that just the frustration too of just having been in prison for five years and looking for another at another four more. So you just yeah, you really feel for her in every every moment she's on screen in this movie, and then you feel her when she's absent, too, which she largely is for most of it, she, but yeah, she's terrific.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. She's, she's remarkable in this. So, so yeah, that's, that's Stillwater, I mean, a kind of example of, I guess, a, you know, a studio-scale movie that you don't know quite what to make of, it can, and yet, I'm always still glad that they put it in there, because it's part of the landscape, you know, and it's, these are, <laughs> I mean, what's funny is that you'll have a movie like that, and there are two or three movies in the festival that are responding to exactly what this movie is doing or exactly what this movie is drawing on. So um, I think that's, it's interesting to, to include it. So that's the water. And now I want to do kind of like a whiplash (laughs) to an entirely different movie. You can probably guess. I'd love to hear about Bergman Island Hmm? from Mia Hansen love, which is, I heard like really mixed things about. So I'm really curious to hear uh, what you thought of it.
1: I am probably toward the more positive end of the spectrum on Bergman Island. I very much like Mia Hansen Love's uh, work as a writer and director. I don't know if this is one of her best films. I, I I think a lot of people would say that like Eden and Things to Come in particular, she really uh, hit her stride. Um, and those were a few years ago now. But I think this movie invited a lot, you know, got a lot of sort of more dismissive reactions too it, it, from people who saw it as sort of a bit of a doodle, just kind of a, a nothing, of a, a wisp of a movie sort of thing. And it, 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 I, my reaction is sort of in between those two, because uh, I mean, I like, I, I I was overall mostly enchanted and taken with it. I think Mia Hansen Love is very aware of the the potential for this, the movie that she's making to engender that kind of reaction and and to be sort of perceived as slight in a way. And I, I think she knows that and she's kind of holding that as she takes us through the movie, which is about, I'll just get to it, it stars Vicky Creeps, uh, who it's lovely to see, uh, in, in a major leading role. Yeah, Vicky Creeps and Tim Roth play a a filmmaking couple. Uh, they have their own careers, but they're both filmmakers traveling to the very famous little island of uh, Faro. This is the island, of course, where uh, Ingmar Bergman made his home. And on the just most basic level, it's it's interesting as a movie that uh shows us and, and kind of gently satirizes this place which has become basically like a bergman theme park since his death and you know where you can go and you know they're basically artists in residence you know they sleep in the bed where bergman shot scenes from a marriage and the movie that as they point out in the movie made millions of couples divorce um and which is and there is also you know there's a hint of like okay not not all is well in their marriage but Mia in love you know with kind of typical subtlety does not come right out and exactly you know there's not a lot of shouting or arguing it's it's not that kind of movie at all mm-hmm. and it's basically them going about the island you know vicky creeps is working uh, her character chris is working on a screenplay that's sort of frustrating her and at a certain point not to give too much away the movie enters a different kind of let's just say kind of metafictional fictional auto-fictional territory where it is very consciously sort of playing with the limits between reality and fiction and also between fiction and fiction. I totally understand the the full gamut of reactions here. What I really like about this movie, what will annoy a lot of people and and what what I found actually sort of uh, subversive in a way Mm. is that Hanson Love is not making an homage to Bergman with this movie at all. Uh, She is, you know, the characters, Mm. of course, are talking about Bergman almost nonstop. At one point, they watch, you know, they watch Cries and Whispers in his old theater from a print and, you know, they're taking these tours and they're learning a lot about him. But the movie feels much closer in spirit to like kind of a, you know, a, a Romare comp, you know, movie or, or a, a Linklater movie. It, it has this lightness to it, which is very much, I think, in keeping with, with Hanson Love's uh, past work as well. And she's also engaged in this really interesting question of, you know, and this is putting herself very much in the character of, of the play by Vicky Creeps, who is basically sort of an alter ego. And you could, you know, we could talk to about her mm-hmm. and her past relationship with Olivier Assayas, who is perhaps represented maybe, maybe not by the Tim Roth character, but the question she's engaging is, you know, it's about women filmmakers and women artists. And can you have it all? Can you have the same professional creative autonomy that, that so many men do? And so in a way she is, Sort of directly challenging Berkman, who's you know some of the less savory particulars of his personal life are not aired but discussed in the movie. And so it's kind of this it's it's not irreverent or disrespectful to Berkman, but it's not it's not a fawning movie about his legacy. Mm. And I rather like that. but beyond that too, I, I was just happy to be along for the for the journey even when the movie enters a different kind of territory and sort of slips slips its bonds in, in a way
0: in its outlines I mean yeah since you you mentioned Asayas I, I started thinking of like something like Clouds of Sils Maria in terms of yeah. you know entering some kind of nebulous emotional no man's land in some way yeah and you know I sort of suspected with the reception to the movie that I mean I'm not saying anyone has something particularly against uh, Mia Handsome Love but I do wonder that if the movie had someone else's name attached to it as a director mm. you know if this was Uh, I don't know, you know, some unknown French director or uh, unknown, uh, I don't know, Argentinian Mm -hmm. director or something, if it would be received differently. I don't know. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Just something about...
1: Sure, uh, yeah. I wonder if the idea would be that it might have gone over better, you know, even though I think, of you know, it got a lot of positive reactions as well.
0: There's a key question there that we haven't addressed, which is, do we get a glimpse of Bergman's VHS collection? (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: You know, there are... You remember
0: that whole thing where it's like, he also had like copies of the
1: Blues yes. Brothers. Oh my God, that's right. Yeah, I can't, I'm trying to skim out because it's been a while since I've seen it, but um, you definitely are inside. You, you see a lot of his sort of physical media and his artifacts, but I don't recall the Blues, <laughs> that, that would have been awesome though. The degree to which the movie is steeped in the, Arcana of of Bergman is is definitely one of its pleasures, and you get the sense too that she could dig you know even deeper into that. Uh, but I but I think she she doesn't for for reason as well. I, I was sort of expecting the movie to take yeah like as you kind of described some more if we think about Clouds of Sils Maria or just more overtly Bergmany turns you know mm. like maybe like what if she you know there's what if the movie becomes like like if it had become Persona halfway through or something like that uh-huh. and and you know but it doesn't so it goes on a different track. I should note too that. Mia Vashkovska and oh, yeah. Anders Danielson Lee are both in the movie as well, and give pretty substantial performances as the movie. They're hmm. part of the the story within a story kind of framework of the film. Wow, yeah. um, I
0: can't wait to encounter this movie as as the kind of miss, mystery it, it seems to be. Yeah, and that will fortunately happen, I suppose, at some point uh, because I think this is one of the films that has a distributor. I think IFC Films has this one, if I'm Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And I think Blue Bayou is also actually coming out, I don't know, in the fall at some point. I forget who the distributor is on that.
1: Focus Features is distributing it in I think September, I believe. Yeah.
0: Yes, Focus Features. So yeah. those you can you can check our work. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so so yeah, that's Bergman Island. And I think uh, there was one more movie I, I was uh, very curious to hear about and that's after Yang from uh, Koganada, who a lot of people I think it's only increased in, in, I I won't say cult film because that makes it sound like it's been marginalized, but I think think, um, Columbus uh, has only increased Mm -hmm. in esteem for people and that's kind of been a pleasure to watch. But uh, yeah, After Yang, I mean, what is After Yang exactly and and what did you think?
1: After Yang is a science fiction drama. Uh, It's a futuristic film um, and it's adapted from the short story Saying Goodbye to Yang by Alexander Weinstein. And yeah, this is of course Kogonata's yeah, follow-up to Columbus. Uh, a movie I love for its its contemplative qualities and for its free-floating conversation and the way that conversation dovetails with Kogonata's um, just extraordinary visual eye, I think, for, for backgrounds, for for outdoor spaces and also interior spaces. He has a wonderful eye for compositions and he's very much that movie was all about modernist architecture and One of that movie's co-stars, Haley Lou Richardson, also has a small but important supporting role in After Yang. But this movie is about uh, a family. Colin Farrell and Jodie Turner-Smith play a husband and wife. And they have a a young Chinese daughter uh, whom they've adopted. And she has an older brother... Who we learn very early on is uh, a techno sapien, or basically an android, a robot, and so he has been. They basically bought him to serve as an older sibling and to also help kind of initiate their daughter, who is Chinese, um, into some of the details of her culture and and kind of help her become closer to her her Chinese or Asian culture. So um, that said, it's funny because the you know this is is very much you know a very uh, multiracial family. If I remember correctly, the exact setting for the film is very indistinct and indeterminate and where we are, when we are. Hmm. Um, So it's very kind of a very disorienting, discombobulating movie from the, from the start. And yet Coco in kind of a way that will very much remind you of Columbus has a very gentle touch. I mean, there are certain harrowing developments, but this is a very becalmed kind of film. And it's very much about ideas about memory the nature of artificial intelligence i mean there there's obviously this is a movie in, in in conversation with a lot of great science fiction films whether it's blade runner but it's also i think that too that the title after yang kept reminding me of uh after afterlife because mm. this is a movie that's very much about memories uh, individual memories and which memories you can take with you which memories you choose to preserve and without and without saying too much about the plot which really doesn't need to be lingered on at all it's but basically the robot starts to malfunction and, and basically shuts down and so a lot of the movie colin farrell who is wonderful in the film uh, reminds you again just what an underappreciated actor he is he's oh, so yeah. good jody turner smith is very good too but he, it's really it feels like farrell's movie he is trying for much of the movie he's trying to get yang the robot fixed basically trying to repair him and and so it becomes he undertakes this sort of journey into into the mind and heart and soul of of this machine and I, accidentally or not, the movie feels like a. The title after Yang just kept reminding me of Afterlife, and there's very much kind of a Corieta feel to the film. It's like if you think about like if Corieta made a um, made a science fiction movie, uh, mm. this is maybe something like what it would feel like. Um, and and I I really went with it. It's very you know, it's very melancholy. There are times perhaps when you maybe want it to sort of you know break out of that that very careful very constructed world that it creates um, both visually and emotionally, psychologically, but I was very moved. And it's funny too, as I'm talking about this, this feels like an interesting bookend to Blue Bayou because uh, another movie in uncertain regard, which a very different story about, about adoption, but, and also about the sort of the, the alienation of being an Asian adoptee, um, which this movie also takes on in a completely different way. Hmm. this is funny too how you know when you go to festivals of course those connections sometimes just start to you know come to mind and you're wondering yeah. am i just making am i just forging these myself and even though like we're not in can it's like that is i, I find myself doing that yeah anyways with the films that i've seen and that just occurred to me just now so uh oh. those sneaky programmers you know but uh, anyways yeah
0: <laughs> yeah that's really <laughs> fascinating yeah and I, I yeah and i also love you bring up uh, after afterlife which is um Uh, I don't know. I always felt like uh, one of those films from like just before the millennium that for some reason just sort of falls out of conversation. I don't know, almost because maybe the way it was marketed at the time as like this, I still remember the trailers from that. Oh
1: Uh, God. Yeah. Very. um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very kind of, yeah. These mockish sort of things. Um, But yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. I kind of have to track that down now and watch it again. And then, yeah, it sounds like for the scenario and the setting that um Colin Farrell, Koganada does a smart piece of casting there to to put his kind yeah. of you know qualities in there.
1: I, I love him so much. Um, yeah. He's obviously like one of the most handsome actors working and and has been for a while and and that, I think gets held against him. He is sort of mm-hmm. that perver- that proverbial great actor who is uh, in a movie star's body. And it's like he has this hangdog quality that I think directors like Koganada. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yorgos Lanthimos in the lo- with the lobster have really tapped into. Oh, yeah. And yeah, he's just so, you really, as he sort of learns to feel for for Yang, you you start to feel for him. And there's just this one, just such beguiling moments in this movie. I mean, it's just so interesting too, you, as you try to figure out what's going on and what the, the context for this film is, you know, because you know, Colin Farrell, he plays like a tea expert. He owns a tea shop. Hmm. And so it's sort of like, so there's this whole conversation too between him and yang and it's all about tea and the way it's just i I can't even i'm bringing it up i can't even describe it it's it's Mm. really kind of a breath quite a breathtaking just scene where it uses that to delve into those ideas about about memory and about experience and what it's like to you know the difference between say the human experience and a robot experience Mm. and yeah, I just I to say, too, the kids are great, too. I mean, they're played, uh, the daughter is played by Malia Emma Chandra Wijaja. Yang is played by Justin H. Min, who's really very good, too. It's a very soulful performance as Yang. So um, mm. I very much enjoyed it. And I look forward to seeing it again. Uh, A24, I believe, is uh, releasing this film
0: oh, at some yeah. point.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, good.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's after Yang. And yeah, I, I I have to think that that's going to find its way into the uh, you know fall um, festival circuit and, and onward. But uh, yeah, again, as you said, that turns out to be like a very nice um, kind of um, bookend uh, for some of the themes <laughs> we were talking about earlier. Um, also uh, standing, yeah, standing on its own two feet. Um, totally. So um, I think that that'll bring us in for landing. Justin, a pleasure as always, uh, I guess. And in this time, especially, uh, having a certain camaraderie, uh, you totally. know,
1: <laughs> not being there. I always love talking with you, Nick. Thank you so much for having me and your, your podcasts are so great. The conversations oh. are so great you have with some of my favorite writers and I look forward to doing this with you, um, at an actual festival sometime <laughs> in the not too distant future.
0: Yes. Well, thank you so much. It's really kind of you to say, and yeah, thanks for taking the time. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song Monserrat. Thank you for listening.